All right, open your Bibles, Four Oaks, to Matthew chapter 16. We're continuing our trek through Matthew's gospel, and I want to begin kind of with a provocative question. It's a question that many are asking today, and it's simply this, Pastor Paul or whoever, what's wrong with the church? No, I'm not talking about Four Oaks. I think this is a great church. Almost perfect in every way. Can I say it that way? I'm talking about the church here in the West, the church in North America. There's, a, there's an interesting book that was just released. Um, acquaintance of mine uh, was part of, of writing this. It's called The Great Dechurching. It was featured on the Gospel Coalition website. And the subtitle of this book, Who's Leaving? Why Are They Going? And What Will It Take to Bring Them Back? That's the subtitle. I'm going to make, have a little quote from the tagline, okay? Because we are currently experiencing the largest and fastest religious shift in U.S. history. It is greater than the first and second Great Awakenings and every revival in our country combined, but in the opposite direction. You know, I... I there's not a lot that evangelicals agree on all the time, but everyone seems to agree that the sun appears to be setting on the church in the West. No, not the rest of the world, by the way. South America, Africa, Asia, the church is burgeoning, exploding, but everyone agrees that this is happening in the West. But what no one agrees with is what should be done about it. And so sociologists, leadership gurus, church growth ex experts, researchers, opinion takers, there can be sort of this frantic sense of panic, of desperation. Pastor Paul, the church must change or die. Now, not to be too snarky, but maybe to be just a little snarky, right? While all of these disciplines have important contributions to this discussion, if we really want to know what the church is to be about, if we really want to know what the future of the church holds, then it makes sense to ask the person to whom the church belongs, and that's Jesus. See, as Matthew 16 is going to show us, and we started this text last week, we're going to continue on this week, Jesus says it's his church. And what we learned last week from Jesus is that the heartbeat of the church is found in Peter's confession about Jesus. What does Peter say? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, for one of the few times in Peter's life, Peter, you got that right. And guess what, Peter? I'm going to build my church. And the question we want to wrestle with this morning is, how? How is, how is that to happen? How, if it's true that Jesus builds, what are we to do? Are, are we playing no part? Are we simply spectating? Are we bystanders? Or is there something crucial that Jesus calls us to as his people as he builds his church. That's where we're going this morning. So we're going to be back in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. And I'm going to invite you to stand as we read God's Word together. Matthew 16. 
Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let me pray one more time for us. Father, this is an ironclad promise. And we simply want to cooperate with you in the building of your church. Lord, we want to have confidence in that. We want to entrust that to you. We, Lord, give us eyes to see. Give us faith. These are not abstract theological principles. This goes into the very fabric of what you're doing in our lives, in the lives of your people. So, Lord, we ask for your help now. In your name we pray. Amen. Please take your seats. Pretty simple, straightforward outline. We're going to talk about the church. Number one, what it is. That's important. How it's built. Number two, and what it does. What's it to be about. So let's go look at verse 18, what it is. And I would submit that this is the heart of the passage. It's the central theme of the text. Jesus makes this abundantly clear when he says emphatically, I will build my church. Now, if you watched the Super Bowl last week, and I know you did, even you teenage girls, for reasons we will not say, okay, you might have seen at the end of the game, the chief players sneak up on coach Andy Reid with that big jug of what? Gatorade. And they proceed to dump it on top of his head. No, no matter how many times this happens, right? No matter even if the coach is, is kind of has it in the back of his mind, they're probably going to try to get me, right? The, 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 the expression on the coach's face is always the same, right? It's like being woken up the middle of three o'clock in the morning with a light shining in your face, there's just this startled, sort of exasperated reaction. And this is essentially what's happening in this passage with the disciples. See, at this point in the ministry of Jesus, things looked kind of grim. And here's what I mean. Jesus was not meeting and exceeding messianic expectations. He was getting a bad job review from the disciples, right? He, he was not conquering. He was not winning. He was, he was not kicking tail and taking names. No, 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 no. In fact, it seemed to be the opposite. It seemed, he seemed to be receding. There was this rising opposition of the leaders. Jesus was predicting 
his own death and suffering as they headed to Jerusalem, things were dark. And when Jesus says this phrase, I will build my church, make no mistake, these are spiritual smelling salts in the face of the disciples. Their their head would have snapped around. They, They would have been stunned at the incongruity of what's happening around them and then what Jesus is saying. Now, the word that Jesus uses for church is ecclesia, which from we get the word ecclesiology or ecclesiastical. So I entitled this sermon, just so you thought I knew I went to seminary, Ecclesiology 101. It's where the word comes from, right? It literally means, interestingly, called out ones. Those who are called out by God from the world to be redeemed as his people. That's the ecclesia. It's used in a variety of contexts in the ancient world for assembly and those sorts of things, but that's the essence of what we are talking about. Now, while there is an organizational aspect of the church, an institutional aspect, a physical aspect of the church, these are not, in essence, what the church is. The church, and we said this last week, is its people. And you could have all those other things, but if you don't have people, the called out ones, professing faith in Christ, you don't have a church. And there are two pronouns here that get at the heart of the church's identity. And let's look back at the text, and Jesus puts it very clearly. Those two pronouns are I and my. You know, part of what has cast deep suspicion on the church in the West, we have to be honest about our failings, right, as a people, are the innumerable scandals that have proliferated across denominational lines. Maybe they've always been happening, but in our social media age, now we know when they happen, the instant they happen. And it's not just the obvious ones like sexual immorality and embezzlement. Those have always been there. But now we come to find out behind the scenes ecclesiastical horror stories, don't we? Toxic and abusive leadership styles. Bullying, lording it over, manipulation, covering up abuse of all sorts. And let me just say, this is a complex issue. We're not getting into all of it this morning. But I would submit that at the bottom of many of these scandals, many of these implosions, is rooted in a misunderstanding, particularly on the part of leaders, about these two pronouns. I and mine. I and mine do not refer to leaders. Churches do not belong to leaders. You are forbidden to say, this is Pastor Paul's church. You are forbidden. Until I die, then you can say whatever. It doesn't matter, okay? Leaders don't own churches. Leaders don't build churches. Jesus owns the church. Jesus builds the church. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, because they were wrestling with this same issue, by the way. Nothing new under the sun. Paul says, what then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. 
So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building, God's what? Ecclesia. Now, there, there's a lot of things that we are privileged to be a part of in the building of God's church. What does it say? We're, we're fellow workers. That's an amazing thing that Jesus invites us in to, 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 to labor alongside of him. He says we are servants. Actually, it says we are slaves. He says we are stewards. But guess what the one thing is that we are not? We are not owners. And the reason is simply this. Listen to what Paul says in Acts 20, 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Listen, to care for the church of God, the ecclesia of God, God's church, which he obtained with his own blood. Did you get that? The reason the church belongs to Jesus is Jesus died for the church. Jesus laid his life down for the church. And because of that, yes, we're invited in. Yes, we are, we are part of that church family. Yes, we get to be of, of, of assistance, if that's even the right word, or, or a service. But Jesus needs no man. Jesus builds his church because the church belongs to him. Now look back at the text. There's something interesting, a little tagline that Jesus inserts after this. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. We'll come back to that in a second. But then he says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, we misunderstand this verse. By the way, gates of hell is just a metaphor for death. And if we have to say, what is Satan's biggest weapon against the church? What is his most lethal weapon against the church? It's death, right? That's why Paul says it's the final enemy. But, but here this idea of death, Paul, Paul, or Jesus draws this metaphor out. He says, death has imprisoned the world. And it's oppressing the world. It's got its under, under its spell and dominion. And it's the church that's, that's assailing the gates of death. See, a lot of times we think, well, the church is a fortress. Don't you think this? And we're just holding on tight until Jesus gets back. And we're living in this castle and hell is laying siege to the church, Right? We think about, I use Lord of the Rings, I can't use that again, but Lord of the Rings, the battering ram, right? To, to Gondor, it's like, it's holding on, it's holding on, it's holding on. And then it just finally, in the nick of time, Jesus comes and saves the day. And it's the church that's battered and bruised, right? With its broken gates, hanging on their hinges that survives. No, no, no. The church is on the move. The church is the one attacking. The church is the one conquering. And Jesus makes it clear, it is the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, that will not prevail. It's, 
Death is the final enemy. But please hear this. This is so important. Death cannot contain the church. Death cannot impede the ultimate progress of the church. Death cannot contain the mission of the church. But Pastor Paul, just look around. If the church doesn't change, if it doesn't get with the times, if it doesn't learn how to be winsome and round off the rugged edges, we know the church, the church has to be more palpable. The church is doomed, and if it's doomed, America is doomed. That's usually kind of our line of thinking. Because can I just say whether or not America or any other country comes and goes, and you got to hear this, does not affect the church one iota. You know, we were on this footsteps of the Apostle Paul tour back in the fall, and we went to these amazing places. Corinth, Ephesus, Philippi, to name three all founded in the middle of intense, overwhelming opposition. There was no such thing as freedom of religion. These churches were planted in hostile territory. But you know what's interesting? There's not a church there now. There's not even people there now. And we say, but, but Pastor Paul, how, how can that be? See, the Roman Empire, did it not become Christian? Several hundred years later, wasn't there peace and prosperity and freedom all across the Roman Empire? Has nothing to do with the future of the church. Churches aren't there because churches stopped being faithful, obedient, prioritizing and walking in the parameters of God's word. You see, Jesus doesn't promise to build every single local church. Jesus simply promises to build his church. And if a church is unfaithful, if a church is apostate, it ceases to be a church. And the current of God's Holy Spirit moves on. But make no mistake, Christ is building his church. Now, what does this mean for us? Let me just a couple application points before we leave this point. On the macro level, can I just say, church, don't panic. Don't lose hope. Don't lose your footing. Just be faithful. We don't need to be try to be cuter than God. We don't need a new program. We don't need a new approach. We don't need a new philosophy. We don't need a new theology. We just need to be faithful to the things that Jesus has called us to. Can I say this on the micro level? You know, at some point in all of our lives, I'll just say it, we all begin to freak out, don't we? We're all like, this is not the way I thought it was going to turn out. Kids, education, vocation, job, age, health, we, we, we start to freak out. And when people freak out and are driven by their anxiety, typically, guess what? We don't make the greatest decisions. We, we start doing crazy things. We start looking for love in all the wrong places. We start looking for meaning and answers and things that God never intended to find, give us meaning and answers. And so if you want to rediscover your mission and purpose this season, here i got some counsel for you and myself. Be boring. Be faithful. 
Just commit yourself, as Eugene Peterson said, to a long obedience in the same direction. And you know what? We may never get to see the revival that saints have prayed for for thousands of years. We may not. Probably won't. But I quote John Piper on this. But maybe not either. Maybe you will. Just entrust the church to the Lord. This brings us to our second point. And I think this is, gets to the heart of what it means and how Jesus builds his church. Let's talk about how it's built. In verse 17 is, shall we say, no uncontroversial statement. Here it is. Peter makes a declaration about Jesus. Remember, we said that we talked about this last week. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, it's Jesus' turn to make a declaration about Peter. And so here's what Jesus says. Simon, you have a statement about me. Now, I've got a statement for you. Simon, from henceforth, you will be known as Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. In the Greek, it literally says, Simon, you are now Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. It, it, it's the, it comes from the same root, uh, Greek root word. It, it literally means rock. Now, here's what I find interesting. I, Guys, I just love to do sermons. Even if you fire me, please let me prepare sermons every week, all right? Because I just, I learn so much. Do you know that Peter as a name was virtually non-existent in the ancient world? It was unknown until this time. Why? Jesus made it up. It's, it's a nickname. It literally means, in today's language, rocky. Can you believe it? You never watch those movies in the same way again, will you? Now, what does it mean exactly that Peter is the rock? And not, and not to put too much emphasis on this, but literally the history of the church hinges on this verse, right? Well, let me just say a couple of things. And by a couple, I mean probably seven or eight. The Roman Catholic Church says that what this means is, is it establishes the primariness of Peter as the leader of the church. And that the leader of the church is derived from an apostolic succession that begins with Peter, but, but continues on into this day. And we know that person as the Pope. He is the Bishop of Rome. He is Christ's representative. He is the voice of Christ. He speaks ex cathedra. He is, he is the head of the church. And as the Roman Catholic Church would say, it is to Peter and his successors, this line of popes, that Jesus has given ultimate authority over the church and even to the interpretation of the Bible. Now, let me just say this, could say so much. Let me just say this in brief. I don't think there's anything in the scriptures whatsoever about the primacy of Peter in a line of leaders descending from him with ultimate authority. In fact, when you look at the New Testament, what you find is, guess what? Peter was fallible and subject to the rebukes and corrections even of the other apostles. 
Remember in Galatians chapter 2, where Paul says, I opposed Peter to his face because he stood condemned. The Pope. No, is that what he said? No, no. Peter was a fallible man. Do you realize that in his letters, Peter says nothing about this unique authority? This is not the way he understood it. It's not the way the apostles understood it. In fact, Peter goes so far to humble himself and say what to the church? I'm just a fellow elder like you. Now, Christians outside the Roman Catholic Church, Protestants, others, would look at this text and say something like this. What Jesus is going to build the church on is not Peter, but his confession. Peter is incidental here, right? He's, he's, other than just making this profession, Jesus is saying, great job, Peter. I'm going to build my church on that confession. Now, let me say something about this. I appreciate people's zeal and passion to protect the authority of Jesus and his word over against what I think are the abuses and heresies of Roman Catholicism, of false doctrine. But I think when people say the building of the church has nothing to do with Peter, I think we say more than what the text says. Because we have to be, our allegiance is to the text. Not tradition, wherever we may find it. We have to let God's word speak for itself. We have to be careful not to bring our agenda to the text and make it say something that we wish it would say so that we can win some argument on the internet, right? Can I just say, if Jesus is trying to minimize Peter's role here, he's doing a lousy job of it. Because it's as plain as can be. Jesus is clearly using a play on words. In fact, the word he uses for rock, remember, Jesus spoke in the Aramaic, and it was translated from the Aramaic into Greek. The Greek word, the Aramaic word for rock is the same in both circumstances, and Peter would have understood it this way. Jesus says, Peter, you are the rock. You are a rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. It's the exact same word. It would have been as obvious as the nose on your face. And when you read Acts 1 through 12, what do you find? Peter is the leader at that point in time of the early church. He speaks on behalf of the apostles. He is their spokesman. He's their acknowledged leader. Peter is given the privilege of preaching what? Pentecost in Acts 2. It's his preaching that gives birth to the New Testament church. Let me even go one step further before I'm stoned up here. Let me say one step further. In renaming Peter, what is Jesus doing? He's just simply doing what the pattern of the Old Testament established, where God would do what? He would come to someone like Abram, or Sarai, or Jacob, and he would say, no more. I'm giving you a new name. And this new name resonates with your mission. So so yes, we don't have to go down the road of papal authority and the primacy of Peter and the Pope to affirm what Jesus clearly says here. 
Peter, I'm going to use you as a representative of the apostles and them to build my church. And guys, I think this is what we see in Ephesians 2. Let's read this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now listen to this. The household of God, what is that? The oikos, the ecclesia, built on the what? Foundation of the apostles and prophets. With Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. See, Peter here in Matthew 16 is representing the apostles. And Jesus is giving Peter, and by the way, we're going to find this word church used again in Matthew 18, where Jesus also gives this authority to all the apostles. And he says, the way that I'm going to build my church is through the apostolic foundation." Not of naked authority, I've always wanted to say that in a sermon, not of naked authority, not authority through a succession of popes or church hierarchy, then then what, Pastor Paul? How will he use the authority of the apostles? Through the words they receive from Jesus. Look at Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is what Jude means when he says, from the apostles we receive the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And so the way that Jesus builds his church is through his word. The word given to us from him to his apostles, which we now have contained in the New Testament. That's in essence, what I think Jesus is meaning here. Once more, let let me say it as clearly as I can. The church derives its authority from the Word of God. When it strays from the Word of God, can I just say this? It is no longer a valid spiritual authority. No matter its tradition, no matter its history, no matter its lineage, Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 1, 6-8. And by the way, he was directing this at the Judaizers in Jerusalem and Peter, by the way. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be what? Accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. It could not be more clear. The church does not have an authority independent of the Word of God. It's not an arbitrary authority. It's not a controlling authority. It's not an absolute authority. The authority of the church is only derived from the Word of God and is only faithful and and authentic to the extent that it conforms to the Word of God, which is why you've heard me say over the years, if you ever hear, wherever you are here or somewhere else, doctrine, theology, that is contrary to the Word of God, 
but you are told that it is your duty as a church member to submit, to support your leaders. We're, we're, we're too big to fail. We, we, this, this would hurt the witness of the body of Christ. Can I just say, run. Run. We'll try to reform the church first, then run. All right? Guys, can I just say this last thing under this point? I know this is a sensitive pastoral issue. I know lots of you have backgrounds differently than evangelicalism. I know that you have family members. I know this can be a complex pastoral issue. This sermon is not meant to walk you through the nuances of those pastoral issues. It's meant to give you a foundation, a framework in which to view them. We had a theology conference two years ago with Dr. Greg Allison. It was called The Book of Romans and Roman Catholicism. It's on our um, resource page. Um, we have interviews with Dr. Allison. If you want to go take a deep dive and then follow up and talk to one of us as pastors, we would love to do that. But let's get to our last point. What is the most important thing the church can do? That's the question. Verse 19. Jesus says, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom. He's speaking to Peter. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Have you ever noticed that whoever has the keys in your house has the power? Do you realize this, right? Dad, where's my car keys? I'm not telling, right? Or... People come up to me, high school students here at Four Oaks. Pastor Paul, do you have the key to the youth room locker thing so we can get in there? I was like, well, if you find the key, let me know because I would, all, I, would, I would love to get in there as well, right? I remember at Camp Vesper Point, we were part of the work crew, and we loved to quote-unquote, I call it for what it is, we would go in there and fill our cups in the concession booth, right, in the off hours, but only if someone had a key. See, key denotes authority. Key denotes power. And that's the same thing spiritually as well. Revelation 1. When I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. He says, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And listen, I have the keys of death and Hades. And what Jesus is simply telling the apostles here is that I have the keys and I'm giving them to you to bind and to loose. Now, when you consider the metaphor that Jesus is using here with keys, we don't have time to go back into the Hebraic concepts of binding and loosing, but I think it's pretty simple. He just means to lock and unlock. Jesus is giving to the church the right to determine who is and who is out of the kingdom. And you may say, well, oh, that sounds abusive. That sounds like an absolute authority. But it's not. I want you to notice the, the word order in the original Greek. It literally reads this. You will bind whatever it is that has already been bound in heaven. It's a past perfect. This is not a matter of the church making independent, arbitrary decisions about who is in and who is out of the kingdom, and God then blesses that ruling just based on the fact that we're the church. That's not what it means. 
Rather, it means we simply ratify and affirm as God's church what He has already said to be true, and it's simply this. Whoever turns from sin and trusts in Jesus will be saved. And if you don't, you won't. And guys, that is an authority that has been given to the church. That has been an authority that has been given to you. Let me show you this. An example of this, Acts 2. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? You ever had a friend ask you that? What, what should I do? And what does Peter say to them? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. What is Peter doing there? What are the apostles doing there? Binding and loosing. They're speaking with authority. Not their authority, Christ's authority. And they're saying, very simply, what all of us have been called to say as witnesses, as the church. And it's simply this, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Do you realize, church, you have that authority? That you can look at one and say, I know that your life is full of sin and regret. And, and guilt and shame. But do you know that you can trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today? You can come to Him confessing your sins and that He will wipe it all away. He will forgive your sins. Do you realize you have authority to do that? Parents, you have authority to say that to your children. Community group members, you have authority to say that to one another. That's what it means to give the authority to bind and loose, not to control each other's lives, not to arbitrarily decide who's in and out and be abusive and control. That, that's not what this is about. This is about the message, the good news. Now, culturally, some would say that's arrogant, that's hateful, that's, that's just power, that's unloving. But in actuality, this is the most loving thing that we can do for anyone is to proclaim the forgiveness of sins in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus gave this commission not just to the apostles, but to the church. Listen to how he ends the Gospel of Matthew. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's why when we baptize someone, we can look at them and say, are you professing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yes, I am. By the authority vested in me, your sins are forgiven. 
Because that's an amazing thing. It's a powerful thing. It's an underutilized thing. But it's the one thing that Jesus has given us as the church, not based on our authority, but based upon his. This chat, this little section kind of ends in a want wall. Look at verse 20, then we're done. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. That's helpful. What is that about? You see, people had the wrong idea of Messiah. They had not understood yet. In fact, the disciples had not understood yet that he had come to suffer and die. That was the essence of his mission. And by the way, Peter's high moment is going to be followed by his low moment next week. Because they didn't understand it yet either. But Jesus says, don't, don't, don't tell anyone. No one understands the mission of the Messiah right now. But you know what? Things have changed by the end of Matthew, haven't they? Jesus says, my mission is now crystal clear. What it means to be my disciple, what it means for you to be my Messiah, it's crystal clear. So now go tell everyone. And Jesus says, as you do, I will build my church. And the reason Hades will not overcome it, Four Oaks, is because Jesus has overcome death. First, by lay, laying his life down and succumbing to death as a sacrifice for our sins, but then reigning, triumphing over death by his resurrection. Which is why when we come to the table, we come celebrating and proclaiming not a tradition, not, not, not an institution, not a structure, but a person, the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself up for us all.